This is episode 491 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Often it is difficult for us to visualize Jesus as king because we're pretty much clueless as to what life is like under a king. All we know about kings and kingdoms come from Netflix miniseries or old British movies or stuff like that. But the scriptures clearly state that Jesus is a king, and it also makes it abundantly clear that Jesus as a king has a kingdom. But what does that mean? How do we even begin to understand the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his coming kingdom? One of the ways is to think about what we know about all human kings and their kingdoms. Because if what we know about human kings is true, then it would be reasonable to assume the same is also true about Jesus and his kingdom. And I think what you will find will surprise you. So join us today as we look at the King of Kings and his coming kingdom, and in the process, learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Um, I preached a lot of messages over the last 20 years, um, a lot of messages that dealt with a lot of issues. This is one that, uh, I think is one of the most important. And so I'm going to ask you to, uh, to really open your mind and your heart to what we're going to discuss today. I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of amazed at some of the things that are going on in our nation right now and within the church. The uh, two years ago, we never thought we'd be in the situation we are right now. We have a president and we have a White House who's signing executive orders as fast as they can. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at them, but they are radically changing our nation. Uh, radically. They, it seems like rather than worrying about the economy, it's more about social engineering. And almost everything that's happening flies in the face of Bible-believing Christians. And so therefore, we have to be stifled. We're finding that the major platforms, such as Twitter, is now banning institutions like Focus on the Family, which is crazy when you think about it. Now they are banned from Twitter because they had the audacity, the audacity to talk about the transgender choice for a cabinet member that Biden has chosen who used to be a man. And the phrase used to be a man was hateful enough to ban them. They are now in the process, or in the talks right now, of putting together a commission that deals with reality and truth. In other words, their job is to go around and rid the world of disinformation. And that disinformation, of course, is what you believe and what I believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, about heaven and hell, about what's right and what's wrong and stuff of that nature. And it is coming upon us even faster than I imagine. Now listen very carefully. Two years ago, we started talking about things that could happen in our nation. We started talking about the way the economy was going. We started talking about the fact that uh, if the Democrats take over the House and the Senate, that most likely your Second Amendment rights would be assaulted and you would find that you could no longer buy handguns, very few uh, rifles, and ammunition would completely dry up. You remember us talking about that? And a lot of people said, yes, I see that and prepared, and most of America sits around with their mouth open going, I, I wanted to buy a gun, and there aren't any. We're defunding the police, and I feel like I need to protect my family, but there's nothing out there anymore. We never thought that there would be um, 
shortages in grocery stores. And all of a sudden we discovered that. We never thought that the standard apparel of an American right now would be wearing a mask. And then Fauci says maybe two masks and a pretty soon three masks. And that pretty soon you're going to find that other countries are already doing that, that you can't fly or you can't travel unless you have shown that you've had a, a, either the, the vaccine or that you've had a negative test within the last 48 hours for the coronavirus. Pretty soon other countries are doing this. It will happen to ours too. You'll be issued a medical passport, which is kind of like papers, please. Medical passport, which basically says you can't shop, you can't travel, you can't go to Walmart unless you can prove that you've had a vaccine or something of that nature. It's coming. And it's all part, it all, all fits in to a precursor of what the Bible talks about, things that will happen in the end. You know, the Antichrist, for example, will take away your ability to buy and sell. And okay, could happen. <clears throat> all you have to do is be deplatformed from Capital One or Bank of America, or Wachovia, or Amazon, or not be allowed to shop at Walmart. And what do we do? We never thought this was happening. And I know that I have been harping on this to the point I get somewhat maligned about it by a few people. But the reality is what we said was going to happen has happened. And what is happening now only points to even more draconian measures. And the key is not Listen to me, the key, the number one key is not to go store up on beans and bullets and stuff of that nature. We're not talking about that. We're talking about having your faith grow to the point that you and I can be the type of believers that can have the faith that God will multiply loaves and fishes, that God will truly take care of us, that, that God is sovereign among all things. And the thing that keeps us from doing that is the love of the world and our devaluation of who we think Jesus is. We promote him as a good buddy. We promote him as a friend, as a pal, as my homeboy. We promote him, as I talked about last week, as some needy person who just wants to have a relation with us so bad so I, Jesus, can be complete if you'll give me just a little bit of your time. And we fail to realize that he is a king what does that mean? I don't know. We don't live in a society that has kings, but he is a king. Today, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the king and his kingdom. And I want you to try to switch your mind from our form of government where we're in charge. I mean, in the Laodicean church age, which is the prevailing age in which we live right now, the word Laodicea means, and this is, of course, in Revelation 3, the word Laodicea means the rule of the people. And that's exactly how we are, that we don't have a king, we have a president. And we, we elected him legally or non-legally, it doesn't matter. We can unelect him, we can impeach him, we can do anything we want with him, we can malign him, we can say terrible things about him, we can refuse to acknowledge him as president, we can just hate him and has no impact on our life right now. Not so with a king. If you had a king and you found that you had that kind of attitude towards a king, you would find yourself facing terrible consequences. We're in control. God, you're not our king. Jesus, you're definitely not our king. You're just somebody that gives us a bunch of shoulds. But since we live in a Laodicean age, we're going to do things the way we want to do. And that is not the way to grow in your faith at all. The way to grow in your faith is to find out what his will is and change our life to him, which of course is painful, which of course 
demands sacrifice, which of course our flesh doesn't want to happen. Please, please listen today. I'm going to try to get through all of this today as we talk about Jesus as king and of course his coming kingdom. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the songs that we've sung to you, the life that we have in you. Thank you for saving us and redeeming us and forgive us for devaluing who you are to something that we can discard, to something that we can ignore, to something that we can blatantly disobey and not expect any consequences. Lord, forgive me, forgive your church, forgive all of us for that kind of attitude. Will you show us today what it means to be a king and us as members of your kingdom? And would you impress upon us a desire to have our faith grow in ways that we can't even imagine? And I'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we know about a king? Well, I've never experienced living under one. And when we're talking about kingdom as they understood it in the New Testament. We're not talking about the queen of England, which has a parliament. And there's this, you know, I don't even know what the queen does. You know, they have to just go to balls and stuff, I guess. But they have this, this fight with the parliament, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't really have a big impact on people's lives. A king during their time was Caesar. A king during their time was ruler over everything. It was King Herod. It was King Agrippa. It was the one that was the final authority in all. So this week I sat back and I I asked the Lord, and I did some reading, and you know, it, try, to, try to help me understand what it means to live in a kingdom, because I don't. I know what it means to live in a republic, kind of a democracy more so, where you know, we can post things about the president or about elected officials, no matter how bad they are, and it doesn't really matter, that we're not all about the kingdom. We're really kind of independent contractors that are sometimes work against the kingdom. When the kingdom says, or our nation says, I want to draft you and go over and fight some wars to protect our nation and protect the kingdom, my generation said no. My generation burnt their uh, draft cards and stuff of that nature. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a different world that we live in right now. And I, I realized in my own life, I don't, have a, I don't have a clue experientially what it means to live in a kingdom, to live under a king. So, Lord, what, 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 what do we know about a kingdom and a king, especially from the Scripture? The first truth is this. A king must have a kingdom has to have a kingdom. A king without a kingdom is not a king. Has to have a kingdom. So Jesus, if, if you're a king, then you have to have a kingdom. Do you? John 18, I'm gonna got a lot of verses. I'm just gonna go through them quickly. Jesus is standing before Pilate and here's what he said. My kingdom is not of this world, although someday it will be in the millennial reign of Christ. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants in my kingdom would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, right now, today, in front of you, my kingdom is not here. Then Pilate says, are, are you a king then? I mean, so you're telling me that you're a king? And Jesus says, absolutely. It is right that I am a king. And if he's a king, we find out that Revelation 19, verse 13 and 16, talk about that. And there's plenty of passages that do the same thing where it talks about his description as he's instituting his kingdom. 
He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and, the, and his name was called the Word of God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's just not a king in a kingdom. He's a king greater than all kings, a Lord greater than all lords. King has to have a kingdom. And listen very carefully. In his kingdom, he sovereignly rules. Every king that ever existed on earth, king of kings and a lord of lords, sovereignly rules in his kingdom. That's what makes him a king. There's no vote. There's no dissent. There's no, I'm not going to do that. You can't tell me what to do. None of that happens. In our form of government, Yes, what we've grown up with, with the people empowered, with my rights are just as big as the rights of Joe Biden or Donald Trump or all that kind of stuff where I don't have to respect the man, I'll just respect the office. That's unheard of in a kingdom. In a kingdom, the king rules sovereignly, sovereignly. Ephesians 1 talks about that, and and you can read this in full context when you go home. But here's what he says. He says, which he, God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And so what does that mean? When he raised Christ up and seated him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. How great a king is Christ. He's far above all principality, powers, might, and dominion. Those words have to do with earthly kingdoms, but more so with heavenly realms of demonic and angelic beings. He is greater than anything. And every name, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, Christ as king and kingdom is preeminent. There is no appeal beyond him. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment. And you can read the commandments in the two verses earlier. Keep it without spot. Obey the king. Blameless. Well, for how long do I keep those things? Until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, where he comes and ushers in his earthly kingdom, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and the only potentate. What a strange word, potentate. What does potentate mean? It means a possessor of supreme power and authority. Christ is is the possessor of supreme power and authority, so much so that he is king of kings and lord of lords, for he lives in a kingdom as a king. Revelation chapter 17 Talks about this battle between earthly kingdoms and the king of kings and the Lord of lords at the end of the tribulation period. It says, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast, earthly kingdoms. They are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And these configuration of 10 kings representing the powers in the earth right now will make more war with the lamb. And the lamb, of course, will overcome them. Doesn't say how, doesn't say by what power he will overcome him them because of who he is, because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and his kingdom and his kingship is greater than any of those. And those who are with him 
which I hope is us, are the called, chosen, and faithful. We know that a king must have a kingdom. We know that in his kingdom, he sovereignly rules. And just so that you're not mistaken by what that means, that means the king has absolute power over life and death over justice and punishment, over blessings and reward, over wealth and poverty, sickness and health, over order and chaos, over everything in his kingdom. If you and I belong to the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ is our king, he has absolute sovereign authority over everything in your life. The very breath that you breathe, this electric kind of energy that I don't even understand that keeps our heart beating until all of a sudden it stops, comes from him. When you wake up in the morning and you see the sun outside and you take that first breath, first breath of air and you have your family around you and you're living in a home and, and a, in a country where you have relative freedom, that is all from him. He can take it away in a moment's notice or he could bless you beyond comprehension anytime he wants. He is the king. And any freedom, well, that's Laodicean church age. Let the people rule. I do what I want. I call my own shots. I have my own mind. I'm going to use it. No, any freedom that you have or any lack of freedom that you have comes from him. He allows his subjects to have certain freedoms. And those freedoms are to choose to do what is right and honoring to the king. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Watch this verse. I say then, the king tells you to walk according to the spirit, the spirit of the king, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and they are contrary to one another the human rebellion, and the lordship of the king. And so the freedom that we have to do anything we want is limited by the king because the king says you cannot do the things that you wish. You can't because they go contrary to what the king wants. I was having a conversation with some of my kids. Um, since I have some grandkids who are in their teenage years, and I get to see some of the things that they do, um, go to the <clears throat> Altitude State Skate Park at night and, you know, skate with a bunch of people and, you know, stuff of that nature. I'm listening to some of the music that they listen to. I'm really shocked that, I mean, I know I sound like my dad. My grandparents, the pastors that preached to my grandparents said, you know, rock and roll that rock and roll music is going to be the death of a generation. And we laughed at them. And you know what? They were right. They were right. And so they thought us in our free love and make love not worn, burn our, I didn't burn my bra, but burn my, you know, <laughs> burn a, our draft cards and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was, that was 60s and 70s stuff and everybody, okay. And they thought we were crazy. And I look at this generation now and it's shocking. It's shocking how we've got to the point where we don't really care what the Bible says anymore. A couple that doesn't have premarital sex, what's wrong with them? And right now, it's the girls that are the most aggressors. How is that even possible for someone who claims to know Christ? Well, hey, it's just the way life is. It's just what we've heard our whole life. It's, it's, it's fine. 
The music that they listen to, the music sometimes in stores that you listen to are not about love, are not about, you know, a relationship with somebody. They're about the, I won't even bother saying it with the children here, but they're about the most vile things you can talk about. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You know, I remember hearing, I wasn't there, I remember hearing and when Gone with the Wind came out and Rhett Butler said for the first time ever a profanity in 1939 from Hollywood. Everybody was aghast and these preachers would preach about pretty soon you're going to have this kind of stuff in your homes. You're going to have porn piped into your homes. You have no idea the door that's been opened here. And they laughed at them and yet they were right. And we've got Christians that watch the vilest movies and, and they have no problem with that. Full of profanity, full of sexual innuendo or sex or nudity. And hey, that's okay. And even, even when we say, well, no, I'm a believer, so I'm going to filter out the language, the content of the movie has nothing to do with something that edifies the king. And nobody cares anymore. It's like, what happened? How did things change? You cannot do the things in which you wish if you want to serve the king. In life, if you lived under a king, the best thing that you can do is please the king. When you have an audience before the king, you're on your best behavior. You do it according to the etiquette that pleases the king. If the king says he likes you to wear a red shirt, you put on a red shirt. You're coming to talk to the king. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of Proverbs, it's really amazing. Proverbs is talking about an earthly king, but you can take some of these and apply it to Christ as king. And look what it says that where's how we're supposed to respond just to an earthly king. Proverbs 20, verse 2. The wrath of a king is like a roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sends against his whole life. You don't mess with a king, but we mess with Jesus all the time. If a king says, here's what I want you to do, I want you to go over there and do this, but don't do this, and we do neither, and we come back and give an audience to the king, hey, did you do what I told you to do? Nah, I was too busy. What were you busy doing? Something I wanted to do. Did you not do what I told you not to do? No, nah, I went ahead and did it anyway. Did you not hear what I said? Sure, but I don't care. The wrath of an earthly king, that person would be in stocks. But we do it to Christ all the time, and it seems acceptable today. Proverbs 20, verse 8, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. We come in with unconfessed sin or we come in holding on to, you know, whatever we want to do. And a king just looks at his subjects and they become fearful because, oh my gosh, that's the king looking at us. These are earthly kings. And yet we, we don't even show our king the same respect. A few verses later, a wise king sifts out the wicked. And what does he do when he sifts out the wicked? He crushes them with the threshing wheel. I went on Google and I started looking to try to find a big picture of a, of a threshing wheel. And the ones I found were so small in resolution, I couldn't use them. But they're these massive stones that just crush up the stuff, the evil that's in a kingdom. You want king wants to rid his kingdom of evil evil heart, evil actions, disloyalty, because we're all about the king and about the kingdom. Proverbs 22, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips 
That's the kind of person the king wants as his friend, not someone who's deceitful or lying or goes his own way or is involved in sin, black or white. The king and his kingdom. Best thing in life is to please the king, and you please the king. That means honor, respect, adulation, sacrifice, commitment, loyalty, and especially obedience. It's not about self-promotion. It's not about us and our little narcissistic bent we have in our society today. Look what Proverbs 25 says. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Oh yeah, I know that, Kim. Let me tell you what I did. Let me, let me hijack the conversation to tell you all about me. Let me tell you what I've done, what I want, what my needs are, what I think. Let me just tell you about me. And do not stand in the place of the great. For it's better that he say to you, come up here and ex- advance and exalt your position than you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. King has a kingdom. In that kingdom, he rules sovereignly. <laughs> and it, since he rules sovereignly, the best thing that you and I can do is learn what pleases the king and to do just that. And here's an amazing thing I noticed. Citizens of the kingdom support the kingdom first. If you will read ancient literature where they talk about the king, you know, even today we use the phrase for king and country, for God and country, for God and king. It's always about the kingdom. You know, there's a, there's a kingdom that we all live in. We're all part of a kingdom ruled by a king. If the kingdom, if the king goes well, our lives go well. If the king is attacked or if the kingdom goes bad, then our lives are also bad. And so what we do is uh, the members of the kingdom, they all bond together. They never work against the king. They work for the king and for the kingdom because it indirectly affects them. Jesus says the same thing, the same thing. All the stuff we worry about, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, how big our house is, how much money we make, how much money we save, how much money we invest, and how much money we get back. We retire with all the toys, all those things we worry about. Jesus addresses here and says, seek first, first. Strive to find first, that's first of all, before all, of greatest importance, the kingdom that Christ rules in of God. Seek first that kingdom and by definition, his righteousness. And as a result of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the things that we worry about, you can read in themselves, will already be given to you by the king. The king will give those things to you. They'll be added to you if you seek him first. Please the king. Here's how we please the king. Citizens in the kingdom support the kingdom first. And because of that, the king's job is to protect us from evil, to protect us from evil in within the kingdom and evil outside of the kingdom. That's exactly what Christ does. He protects us from the evil one. He gives us spiritual armor that will extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. He tells us not to worry about food or clothing or shelter. Just come under him, crawl under his wings, be dependent upon him, and he'll take care of all of that. Here's what he says in John 10. Jesus speaking about us, members of his kingdom. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and my father are one. 
In the, in the last chapter that Jesus spent with his disciples teaching in the book of John, John 17, Jesus prays. And here's what he prays. I pray that you should not take them out of the world. The word here for world is cosmos. It does not mean the physical earth. It's another Greek word for that. The word cosmos means the world's system, the world's way of thinking, what the world values, the world's economic and political system, entertainment systems, moral systems. It's what we call, we would say, the, the world view. Do not take them, not off the physical earth, but do not take them out of this perverted world system that now belongs to Satan. But I do pray that you will keep them in his domain from the evil one. Why? Because they're not of that world system. They don't think like the world. They don't act like the world. At least they shouldn't. Just as I, Christ says, am not of that world. So what I want you to do is sanctify them by your truth. And the word sanctify means to make holy, clean, or rendered pure. The church of Christ should so much emulate Jesus that the purity and holiness that we see in him should be reflected in us. But unfortunately, today, the church is just as carnal, just not quite as bad, just as satisfied living in the gray area, not hot, not cold, just kind of lukewarm, because we want the world system, the cosmos, to accept us. John, uh, Revelation 3 says that the result of that is Christ will vomit us out of his mouth. What do we know? Best thing to do is please the king. Would you agree? Best way to please the king is to do all the things that are honoring to the king, especially obedience and faithfulness and loyalty to him and his kingdom. That the citizens of the kingdom can't be about themselves. They have to be about the kingdom and about the king. Works exactly the same way in church. That because of that, his kingdom, king will protect us from evil. He's already promised to do that. And here's the key point that I'm going to expand on next week. Honor, responsibility within the kingdom, advancement within his kingdom is granted by the king and it's based on certain virtues. In other words, if you work in a, if you're a member of a kingdom and they exalt you and advance you to certain positions of authority, it's because of character that you have. It's because of some virtues that you have. They don't do it to everyone. If you want to view a business as a kingdom and you're the owner, you advance certain people based on their loyalty and their trustfulness and their honesty and their obedience and their commitment. You don't just advance everybody. It works exactly the same way in an earthly kingdom and also in the kingdom of God. That was the introduction. So what are these virtues? I don't know. What virtues would you have? would you want if you ran a business? What virtues are you looking for in people to trust your wealth, your business, your future, your fortune with somebody else? Well, I look for faithfulness, honesty, of course. I don't want them stealing from me and embezzling from me. I want loyalty. I mean, that's just what people do and obedience. Okay, all right. Same virtues that God's looking for in his word. Same ones. So let's assume that um, we were having a performance evaluation. 
or the king was giving us a report card that basically said, here is how well, or this is how well you were doing as subjects of mine or employees of mine when it comes to the virtues necessary to be well-pleasing to the king. So I want you to just ask yourself how you would rate on these three commands. Just, I only picked three, three commands. And these are the commands that kind of hit us all where the rubber meets the road. Tell me how you would do. First one, not everyone who says to me, what's my verbal assent? That's my Sunday morning. I love Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world. How many people say to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven? Not everyone who just verbalizes it. Well, then what's more required than words? Actions. We know that. We know that, you know, a, um, a child says they love their parents and parents uh, uh, ask them to do something and they refuse to do it. But, but I love you. You know, you, you're, you say you love me, but your actions don't show it because deeds speak louder than words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Then who will? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He who's actually involved, hands-on, doing the will of my Father in heaven. How are we doing when it comes to that? I'm really good on the saying, maybe not so good on the doing. Let's put it another way. This is from Luke. But why do you call me Lord, sovereign, king, and not do the things I tell you to do? Because I don't want to, because I think it's unreasonable, because I enjoy the flesh. I enjoy doing the things I want to do. I enjoy calling my own shots because I'm living the Laodicean in church age, because I'm a narcissist, because it's still all about me. How would we rate? Let's look at this one, which is the hardest one for men. No one can serve two masters. Okay. I got that. You can't serve Jesus and Muhammad. Got it. That's not the two masters he's talking about here. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, of course, is a word that means wealth. It's the personification of riches. It means earnings, gains, or material things. Now, I want you to read what he said. You cannot serve mammon and Christ. It doesn't say it will be hard. It doesn't say it will be difficult. It doesn't say that you can try and maybe do okay. You cannot have the God of this world personified in money and what we can buy and make our flesh feel better. You cannot have that God with a little g and the God of the Lord Jesus Christ both on the throne at the same time. Well, I don't. I only serve Jesus, really. But I spend... 23 and three quarters hours of my time worshiping the money and only a little bit of time if I have left over and I'm not too sleepy taking care of Christ. Or put it this way, do not agapeo the cosmos. Do not love the world. Now this love is an altruistic love. This love is the highest form of love. This, this love gives you an escape. This love is, well, I don't love the world that way. I don't love the world like Christ loves me. I, I'm fond of the world. I like the world. You know, I enjoy the world, but I don't love it that much, this world system. Do not love the world, okay, or the things in the world. And what are those things? Uh, the music, 
the entertainment, what we do for pleasure, uh, how we spend our own time, how we live our own retirement, why we accumulate wealth for ourselves, building up greater barns. The fact that I'm only going to serve God when I want to serve God, the things I read, I watch, versus doing things that Christ wants me to do. I'm going to call my own shots and do what I, that I want to do because that's just the world in which we live. And the Bible says, do not love the cosmos, the world system, or the things in the world system that the world exalts. Why? Because if, and the word also means since or because, anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Not kind of in him, not could be in him, not is in him a little bit, but we're hoping it's going to get bigger. Not in him. Every one of us sitting here going, that doesn't apply to me because I don't love the world that much. I just I just kind of buddy up to the world. I don't agapeo the world. And then James uses a different word in the Greek. James calls us adulterers and adulteresses, those that have left their first love. And he says, do you not know, and this is Edo, do you not cognitively know, everybody should know this, that friendship, this is the second Greek word, philia, this means Exactly what it says, friendship. It's not as great as agapeo, but it means a relationship. Like to spend time with. I share with you, you share with me. These are our best friends, our buddies, our earthly relationships. That friendship with the cosmos is hatred, is war with God. It's black and white with God. It's all gray with us. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world, I want what the world wants. I'm going to spend my life getting what the world gives. I want my satisfaction to come from everything the world has to say, makes himself, our what we're doing, an enemy of God. It doesn't say God's a little disappointed in you, that you should make better choices. It doesn't say that at all. It says makes himself an enemy. And this is just being a friend of the world. This is just embracing the world. This is talking about the world and thinking about the world are the things of the world. Well, what are you saying? That we have to be so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good? I had that thrown at me forever. What does that even mean? You're so heavenly minded that you know earthly good. Well, what good would you be on earth? Well, to make a lot of money and have a big house and pool and everything, take nice vacations and retire with a lot of money and, and go to Paris, do the things that I want to do. Is, is that what life's all about? We will stand before a judgment seat of God and give an account of how we've lived the life that he has granted to us. And I don't think he cares about the amount of money in our 401k. Now here's the problem we face. This is the problem all of us face, including me. I'm preaching to me. God rakes me over the coals first. The word is sanctification. It's the one part of, or it is one part of the salvation chain that is totally up to us. You know, in Romans chapter 8 that we talked about last week and the week before, it talks about those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified. That's all God's doing. And then there's this huge leap from justification all the way to glorification is what happens after we die. And, and God takes care of all that. What's in the middle is sanctification. It's how you and I live day by day 
moment by moment with the spirit now that's within us. It's how we honor the king by choosing to do things that honor him. The word sanctification literally is summed up in 1 Peter 1.16, where it says you need to be holy as I am holy. This is from Gruden's Systematic Theology. Sanctification is a progressive work of God, which is true, and man. God empowers, we choose, and we're supposed to grow in sanctification and grow in Christ-likeness as we get more mature in our faith that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ, not positionally, but in our actual lives. That people will see us and they'll see what we used to do that we don't do anymore. We'll see the things that we do now that we never did before. And they'll say, there's something different about you. Well, when is the last time somebody told us that? I really noticed something different about you. There's a, there's a spirit about you. There's a there's a Christ-likeness about you that, that is so much. You, you have said no to things that we used to do. Instead, we just jump into the shallow end of the pool and not the deep end, splash around with all our lost friends, do the things that they would do, so therefore we can have a relationship with them and enjoy the things of this world that make us enemies of God. Well, that doesn't sound like the God I've always been preached at about. I always thought God was all love. He is. And Jesus is the spotless lamb until we get to the book of Revelation. And then these, these kings of the earth and these people involved in wickedness and these lost people are crying out, telling the mountains to fall upon us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. He is just and loving. Because he's so loving, he gave us an opportunity not to experience his justice. But if we continue living like that, like the world does, the Christian world does, why would we expect anything different? Now watch this very carefully. The word sanctification in scripture is also interpreted holiness. We have a tendency of seeing that long word sanctification and going, okay, I don't, you know, whatever. But when you put the word holiness in there, exactly how it's also translated, it begins to change everything in some of the verses we look at. For this, for example, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented the members of your body as slaves of uncleanliness before you got saved and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness or sanctification. Same Greek word. So when I present my body as a living sacrifice to the Lord in Romans 12, holy and acceptable unto him, the end result is I'm presenting it to be like Christ, to be holy, to say no to questionable things and say yes to the things that please the king. A few verses later. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to sanctification, the fruit to holiness, to being set apart for holiness. And the end of a life like that is eternal life. 1 Corinthians 1.30, which is the book, the verse that really prompted the whole last book I wrote. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And what did Christ Jesus become for me? Wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Theological terms. How about this? He became righteousness, wisdom, 
holiness and redemption. I accept the redemption. I'll accept the righteousness, kind of. I'll take the wisdom, but when it comes to the holiness, that's when I have to make the decisions. And I'm kind of comfortable, as the church is today, me too, I'm kind of comfortable living in lukewarmness. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 5. For this is the will of God. What? Your holiness. Your holiness is the will of God. How? You abstain from sexual immorality. Well, not in this culture. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in holiness, to do the things that are holy and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. If we don't possess our bodies in holiness, we're indicating to God that we're acting just like people who don't know him. And this is one of the things that keeps us from experiencing this surge in faith that we're going to need in the times that are before us. I think this is the last one. Pursue peace with all people. Anything else? Yes, and holiness and sanctification. Because without these two, without which, no one will see the Lord. Well, they know what we want to do. Don't we have the kind of relationship with him that we can hear from him and he opens his word to us and we can see him and embrace him and understand him? And if that happens, as I've shared with you before, it's a life-changing experience. So what are the two things we need to focus on? Having peace with all people and holiness and sanctification. It's that important. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking... If this is true, in fact, you're probably thinking, I wish I hadn't come today. But if this is true, then there's a lot of things I need to give up. And there's things I don't want to give up. There's things I like doing. I like to watch these TV shows. I like to drink my alcohol. I like to, to look at sexually explicit things. I like to laugh at the terrible jokes my buddies talk about. I don't want to pick the Bible up. I don't want to have to do Bible study. I don't want to pray. I'd rather go make money or take webinars and, and figure out how to be better in this world. I mean, it's all that kind of stuff going through our heads, every single one of us, including me. So the question is, someday, since we serve a king, all the things that we don't really care about, obedience, loyalty, faithfulness, commitment, sacrifice, will be judged by the one who does care about those things we don't care about. And that judgment takes place at what's called the Bema Seat of Christ. Two verses I'll share with you. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. To me. No arrogance when we're facing the Lord. And every tongue shall confess to God. You're in my... Before I got saved, um, I was so arrogant so arrogant that I actually had pictured in my mind this great white throne judgment. That's not the judgment we're talking about here where the books of life were open to see if my name was written in there. And I was actually so arrogant that I pictured that God would open this book and is his name written in the book of life. Some of this coming from Jack Chick tracks and uh, no, it's not Lord. And so getting ready to cast me into eternal torment. And I would say, give me five minutes just to hear my side. Okay. 
And God would go, okay. And I would be able to weave this logical argument to him to show him how his rules were a little draconian or I really wasn't all that bad. So at the very end of my five-minute center stage here, he would look at Jesus and go, he's got a point. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Okay, you can go into heaven. Actually that arrogant before I got saved to think that's how it happened. By the way, it doesn't at all. I mean, that's the height of stupidity. There is no, well, this is the way I view it, God. Every knee will bow to me. Even Satan will someday bow to him. And every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us, each of us, me, Debbie, Tim, Susan, every single one of us will give an account of himself to God. You think a performance evaluation for a boss who doesn't like the work you're doing is rough? You think getting a report card from your teacher with a D minus is rough? What's it going to be like when God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, looks at you and says, I blessed you with all of this for 43 years. Show me. Show me what you've done with what I've given you. Well, you're a hard master, Lord, and you, I, I'm nothing. Nothing. But that day is coming. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, but we must all, all of us appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne judgment where our sins will be judged. That's already taken care of by the blood of Christ. That happens at the end of the, uh, end of the millennial reign of Christ. But we'll all be judged before the judgment seat of Christ. And what will that judgment be? That each one as individuals, you can't blame it on somebody else, will receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You'll receive reward or you'll suffer loss of reward. And it will all be based on what we have done here on earth. And to be honest with you, this is, of course, called the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ. And if you don't know when it takes place, it takes place before the millennial reign of Christ. This will determine the authority, the honor, the position that you, we'll talk more about it next week, that you will actually have for a thousand years ruling and reigning with Christ. He's not a socialist. He doesn't take someone who's been totally unfaithful and make him vice president and somebody over here who's worked 20 hours a day and make him vice president and say, well, I just don't want this guy to feel bad. If you wouldn't do that in your business, why would you expect God to do that in his kingdom? No king does that. What will be judged at this time, of course, is our sanctification. It's what we're doing right now. All the stuff that seems so important to us, the little bitty sins that make us do the thing, or that we choose to do the things that we want to do, mean nothing then. And if our life on earth is 80 or 90 years, 70 for people that don't take care of themselves, what's it going to be like 10, 12, 15 times that during the millennial reign of Christ? We are so short-sighted when we think about those things. So let me just ask you this from last week. Do you believe God holds us accountable for the things we do in this life? If he does, then what are some things that you need to change to be more like him? I mean, every command you see in scripture, you should, I want to please the king. I want to please the king. Well, you know what that means? That means 
That means when um, Oswald Chambers talks about this, that means when you choose to follow God, it's going to cost other people something. Well, I've been watching this series with my wife on television, Netflix series, and, and it's really good. There's like eight seasons in it and it's really nasty. And all of a sudden I got convicted about the fact that I need to abstain from even the appearance of evil, that everything that is pure and righteous and holy and of good repute, these are the things I need to dwell on and not all this other garbage of the world. And it's really interesting because it appeals to my base level. There's nothing in my spirit that's attached to this, but it appears it appeals to my base level. And I've watched like three series with my wife and now I'm convicted. So I have to sit and tell her, I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm, really? I don't want to watch it in the first place, and you talked me into it, and now you're going to get all spiritual on me right now, and so now I'm not going to be able to watch it. Jeez, I wish you wouldn't have even started this thing, and we're not going to finish it. But the fact is, it'll cost you something. And everybody will be talking about it at work, but you won't. Everybody will be talking about all the music going on, and, and you won't. Everybody will be talking about the newest book that came out, and but you'll be, oh, I didn't have a chance to read that because I was too busy studying the book of Lamentations. Oh, I was incredible. You ever heard of Lamentations? Wow, you're weird. I want nothing to do with you. I don't want our desire to be loved by the world, to be fostered by the world, to be accepted by this world cosmos, to be a friend of the world is so great that we're willing to take our light and put it up under a bushel, even knowing we're going to be judged for it. Just so lost people our carnal Christians will like us and invite us out to lunch? Do you realize how incredibly short-sighted that is? And don't get me wrong. In 2002, 2005, 2012, it didn't feel so bad living that way. But we're facing really difficult times. And the times for putting all that stuff that doesn't matter to the forefront of our life has got to end. It has to end. Because God is not a socialist. God is not going to judge everybody's works equally. Listen very carefully. Everybody's sin who embrace Christ is covered by the blood of Christ at the white throne judgment. There, it's all grace. But during his kingdom, during this thousand-year reign where he sets it up on the earth, that he judges according to what we have done in the flesh. And as I've gotten older, I'm 65 now, uh, approaching 66. If I've gotten older and that day seems to keep getting closer every day, you don't think about it when you're in 20s, but you think a little more about it 40 years after that. The fact is, is nothing is more important than this. Nothing. And if God holds us accountable, and will hold us accountable. And we have to take a test. And don't you think it now would be the best time to prepare for that test by living righteously in front of him? It's the quickest and best way to have a spiritual renewal in your life is to be holy as he is holy. True? Now, I'm not judging anybody's sin in here. Uh, I have no idea what you do. Um, what your private life is like. But I can tell you that, again, if I started with Karen and we went this way and I asked on a scale from one to 10, who's a 10, who's less than that? I virtue to say, if it's like every other time we've done it, maybe one person in here would say that they're a 10. One or two would say they're a nine. Most of them would be six, seven, eight. A few people be honest enough, say you're twos and threes, which shows you right now, you ain't cutting it. 
There was a time in your past, probably many times in your past, you were closer to the Lord than you are now. And so if we just did that today, we'd realize that now is the day to focus on him. And now is the day to live righteously before him because our time is running out. Amen? Let me pray.